and the point person for this administration in working with the Congress to move the legislation along is Tommy Thompson, our secretary. He has done a fabulous job. If he looks tired, it's because he's showing up early and going to bed late, working for the seniors of America. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was then-President George W. Bush in 2003, praising HHS Secretary Tommy Thompson for his work on Medicare's new drug benefit. I'll be honest, Tommy Thompson is someone I've wanted to interview for this podcast for a long time, but I especially wanted to talk to him now. We have another new HHS Secretary, Alex Azar, who worked as a top aide to Tommy and remains close to him. And there have been real questions about whether HHS leadership has operated efficiently, effectively, and ethically over this past year, questions that Politico has raised. So on this podcast, we discussed Tommy's time as HHS secretary, the skills needed to run the department, and then got into what he thinks HHS should be prioritizing. You can look to the time cues to jump around. Just a reminder, you can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps, Every time you rate us or review us, that helps new listeners discover the show, too. And you can find me at ddiamondatpolitico.com. Suggest who you'd like to hear from on the show and send in questions that you might want me or my colleagues to answer on the air. And with that, here's Tommy Thompson. There are 80,000 people at HHS. Some days, I'm sure, it feels like there are 80,000 different issues to deal with, whether it's Medicare, some patient issue... As HHS secretary, how did you decide how to set your day? It was very simple because every day as Secretary of Health and Human Services, there's an emergency of some type. And that emergency usually is prominent and it's, and it's front and center and you have to take care of it. And so you usually take care of those, plus you always have a schedule, a schedule that's out a week, 10 days, probably two to three weeks. And then you have to follow that schedule because you can never really uh, get behind too much because if you do, you got so many people waiting to see you. It's really fast and it's really full, and you've got to make sure that you stay on top of it. And so it's the emergencies that come up during the day that you got to take care of and intertwine that into everything else that's taken place. But it's the schedule that drives the secretary, plus the issues that are coming up. And you want to take care of the issues that's most important to you, because those are the ones that you really want to continue to drive forward and make sure you make some progress on, on a daily and weekly basis. How much of that schedule and agenda are set by you as HHS secretary versus the White House, or, or your, the officials under you at FDA and CDC who have their own agendas? Well, basically, the secretary has the, has the most control. You have, you have your own followers, your own people in the, in the department, and you've got to listen to the White House because they're your boss. And uh, they usually, um, you know, call once a day. Uh, but they really, in my case, didn't spend much time micromanaging, they let me pretty much run the department. They said, you know health, you know what's necessary for social services, you've been involved as governor, we're not going to try and micromanage it. We know we can't, you're not that kind of a person. And so do what you have to do, but don't embarrass us. And make sure you check in with us on occasion. And that's what, that's what you do. 
other other presidents do it differently, but George W. Bush pretty much was hands-on with, with my department. I don't know about other departments, but he let me pretty much do my own thing. So I, I had pretty much control of my agenda, direction I was going to go, and the issues that I want to really, really get involved with. So an issue like the prescription drug benefit. Right. How are you strategizing as the HHS secretary about how to achieve that goal? Well, Part D was was really an important thing. It's, it's still a very important issue, uh, and it's one that has received tremendous support. Ninety some percent of the elderly, you know, in recent polls said, you know, Part D is working. It's a very good program. Don't change it. And I've talked to Democrats who have said we opposed Part D at the time, and they now thank it. goodness for Part D. Absolutely, and uh, I knew that it was really good. But but the president, if you remember back then, the president. Was, was trying to get a drug program uh, for the elderly. And he says, Tommy, get it done. He, he, uh, basically, he says, you know, Tommy, get it done. So we spent a lot of time developing it at CMS and in my department. Uh, my own lawyers helped draft it. And then we went over to the White House, and we had weekly meetings in the White House. And then we went over to the White House and finally decided that we're going to try something new, trying to do some free enterprise and see whether or not we get the insurance companies to come in and help us develop the program. Not develop the program, but actually participate in the program. We didn't know if it was going to work. And then I had to go over and sell it on the Capitol Hill. And I spent hours lobbying this through the Health and Human Services or through the Health Representatives in the United States Senate. I stayed overnight till 5.30 in the morning, the last night in the House of Representatives get it passed. Mr. Speaker... I move reconsideration. We kept the roll open. Speaker Hastert's kept the roll open for three hours to finally get the last vote. I had to call the President of the United States, George W. Bush, at 4.30 in the morning in order to get him out of bed in order to convince the last two individuals to vote yes. That's how close it was. And the Democrats were opposed to it. And now Democrats and Republicans alike bipartisanly say that Part D is a fantastic program. That was one of the most famous votes in Congress in the past 20 or 30 years because of not only the need to hold it open, but really it was unclear where it was going to go. That doesn't often happen. Usually you know the outcome of the vote before it happens. We did not know. And when Speaker Hester said, I think it was uh, 12 o'clock, he says, we're gonna, we don't know. We don't have the votes. We don't know if we can do it. And they started voting about 1.30, and they kept the roll open, I think, till 5.30 in the morning. When I walked out of that, I think it was over at 5 o'clock when the last two votes uh, that came from Arizona that voted for it. And uh, we got it done, and, and people said, oh, I don't know how long it's going to last. And the Democrats tried to make it an issue then in the presidential election. And they didn't. And when, when that didn't happen, then they came back the following year to change it. But they, they, made, they made a mistake. They introduced legislation. Then they found out polling that the elderly really liked Part D. And as a result of that, they decided, well, maybe we better work with it instead of trying repealing it. You've described a number of different skills that you deployed as HHS secretary, yeah. building consensus, right. being able to manage a schedule, manage an organization. The theory that I've always heard is that HHS secretary, if you've got experience running something big as governor, as university head, as a company leader, that that is maybe one of the top skills. Is that the case? It's a, it's a really good skill. 
I wouldn't say it's the only one that you really need. You need a lot of skills in order to run a department. You got to realize Department of Health and Human Services affects every man, woman, child, everyone that's listening on this program. Sometime during the day, you're doing something, whether it's the food you eat, the medicines you take, uh, an elderly, a child, some, some way the Department of Health and Human Services interacts with you. We had FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb on this podcast not long ago, and he gestured to the water bottle and said, I, I think we regulate this at FDA. So ways that HHS touches us that we might not even know. Well, it's the food that you eat, the, what you drink is regulated. 80% is regulated by FDA. FDA. And all the medicines you take, all the, all the elderly program, all the children's program, all the Native American programs, the health of, for Native Americans all comes through the Department of Health and Human All the research done on new drugs really is emanated from NIH. And plus Social Security, Medicare, all somehow are interrelated. Inter, uh, yeah. Interrelated, yes. So if, if organizational skill is only one of the skills yeah. that HHS secretary needs, what are the others? Is it understanding all of those issues? Because you could study your entire life and never get to the bottom <laughs> of everything at NIH. That's very true. But the truth of the matter is, is that the department has got so many individual divisions. And so nobody's ever really tried to run it. What I try to do is I say the health and human services is one department. We're all working together for the right causes. And so I w every week I used to bring the heads in for lunch. Nobody's ever done that. And I also went out and spent a week at every one of the operating divisions. I went out to FDA and ran it for a week. Didn't run it, but I was in, in the commissioner's office and actually did it. People reported to me. No secretary's ever done that. And it worked out extremely well. I learned a lot. That was right when you started. That's right. And that was a way to kind of learn how the bureaucracy worked, how the different career departments worked. It's absolutely correct. I always tell the story that when I was governor, get up in the, in the evening and come up with a great idea, and I'd write it down, and by 9 o'clock in the morning, I'd have people working on it. When I was at Department of Health and Human Services, big difference. I still had the idea, went in and worked on it in the morning and tried to tell somebody. I found out that the seventy-five to 80,000 employees all think that they're smarter than the secretary. So you got to get buy-in. That's, that's a big skill that you have to have. Then it goes over to the super god in our society. I didn't even know we had a super god. It's OM OMB. OMB. And they turn you down four times out of five just to show you who the boss is. Then it has to go through the super intelligentsia, the young college kid who's never had a job but was working in the White House because he worked on a campaign. And he doesn't think anything original or smart can come out of a secretary. And then if you do get past the superintelligentsia, the college graduate that's just got a summer job or an intern, then it goes to the, to the president. And if you could buy in from the president, it goes to Congress. By that time, it's time to retire. That's why nothing gets done. <laughs> but it's a slow, laborious process that you have to go through. And governor, you, you're immediate. You can have something, an idea in the evening, by 9 o'clock in the morning, people are working on it. We had a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago, Bob Coker, who worked in the Obama White House and said, trying to get things done in government, I think he used the expression, it's like walking through Jello. Or not Jello. Jello is, is too easy to walk through. It's like walking through you know, quicksand almost. Quicksand, absolutely. The decision to go around the department, embed in different agencies. Right. I, I was curious about that because you're coming to Washington as someone who really hadn't been in this world before. There are people coming in from the right. campaign. 
how do you build a coalition when there are different competing power structures within a large organization like HHS? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to develop a friendship. And then you have to develop something, you know, that you're not threatening to them. You have individuals out of NIH that don't believe that a secretary should be that much involved with the operation. And I didn't want to get involved with the operation, but I did want them to be part of the, part of the department. And so I thought the best thing to do was go out to NIH and spend a week and going around to the division, to tremendous different uh, colleges out there and the, big, and the researchers. And they found that I was a nice guy and was actually very interested in what they were doing. That's the most important thing. If you can get people to buy in as to the motives and the objectives, you can get a lot done. And that really, no secretaries ever really embedded themselves in each one of the divisions. I did that, and I wish I tell everybody, every secretary that follows me, they should do that. Nobody's really done it. I, I ask in part because HHS right now is somewhat different. Yes, there are still different power structures, people who came well, sure. in from yeah. the Trump campaign, folks that you worked with, like Alex Azar in yeah. high-priority positions, and Joe Grogan over at OMB, the super oh, god. Absolutely. When you look at this HHS, do you recognize it? Does it look like an HHS that you would have run? Or because of all of these different ways of running this HHS, does it feel different to Every you? secretary is different. You know, every, every secretary has different objectives, different issues that they really work on. I was concerned about the flu epidemic. I wanted to get a, a ubiquitous vaccine that was going to cure all things. And, and on 9-11, I invited scientists from all over the country in to see me. And 9-11 happened in the morning, at 8.15 in the morning, and we had to cancel it. We never really got back to that. But that was one of my big issues, is trying to develop a universal a, flu vaccine. Universal flu vaccine, yeah. Azar, as, as just mentioned, yeah. HHS secretary, someone you worked with, Joe Grogan. My general counsel. General counsel, now running the department. What sort of advice have you given him, either behind the scenes or, or open to everyone? I told him to be bold. Follow your, follow your gut and your heart and your mind. Be aspirational. Think of, think of something you really want to accomplish because there are so many issues coming at you every single day that unless you really become focused on certain issues that you really want to accomplish, you may not be able to accomplish that much. Be bold. And I also tell everybody, which I used to tell, if you're not standing on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Look over. Don't do anything illegal, but push the envelope. Make sure that you're bold, courageous, and make decisions. The worst thing in a department that large is to try and delay the decision-making. It doesn't get any easier next week or next month. you got to be able to get on it, and you got to make the decision so people know what's going on and have some degree of finality and move on to the next one. It will kill you, and it will break down the flow in the department if you, the secretary, cannot make decisions based upon the evidence in your own, own feelings and what you've learned. What are the bold decisions that HHS needs to be making right now? Well, the biggest decision really is how do you get drugs to market faster? It's way too expensive, way too overly regulated. People want safe drugs, but they also want to be able, if they're dying, to have the best chance out there to relieve, to relieve their pain and be able to give them a better quality of life. And I've never felt that the that FDA, FDA really 
takes that to heart as much as they do. Scott Gottlieb, I think, is the best. He's pushing it, but I still think they need to push it a lot harder. I would think go to a phase four. Yeah, first phase one is for safety. Phase two is for efficacy. Phase three is a combination of them. Well, go to the next phase four. Have phase three slim down, but get it to the market. And phase four, allow people to have the use of that drug for a year. And then look at, you know, what people have taken, what the examples have been, whether it's been good or bad, and then make it a final decision. So I'd say phase four is something that FDA needs to do, the department needs to push it, and we'd get more drugs to the market faster, more drugs to people faster. One bold move that HHS has made is around Medicaid work requirements, instituting work requirements for the Medicaid program. Now, as governor of Wisconsin, one of your signature efforts was Was work requirements and welfare. Absolutely, and there's nothing wrong with it. People should work. There's there, people should not just get a handout. They need a hand up. They need to be able to encourage to get a work experience. And that's what Medicaid is all about right now. It's one of the new issues coming out of the department, and I'm all for it. It's what I started in, in, uh, back in Wisconsin when I was governor on welfare reform, and it worked. And my welfare reform worked so well that the federal government under Bill Clinton, passed it into law using about 75% of what I had started in Wisconsin. So I know work works, and I know work helps the individual, and it gives, it teaches them a lesson, teaches them to get up in the morning, teaches them to go to work, gives them a skill, and also gives them a better opportunity to get ahead in life. Well, isn't one argument that welfare is significantly different from Medicaid, where there are people who are too ill to be working? Well, there's no question. Some people are too ill, and you got to take that into consideration. But there are a lot of people on Medicaid that can work, and they'd be happier if they were working. There'd be a, a, a responsibility there. There'd be something that an objective that they're trying to achieve, and they would feel better about themselves getting up and going to work. Not everybody can work, but a lot of people that are not working should be working. We've talked about what it was like running HHS. We just alluded to your time as governor. What are you doing now out of office, and how do you set your schedule these days? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm in the private sector right now, and, uh, and one of the, you know, I mentioned about getting the drugs to market faster. There's a company uh, that I'm associated with and on the board of Time. You know, two of my younger brothers died of pancreatic cancer, and it's a it's really one of my new missions in life is to come up with some medicines that's going to help do something for this insidious, terrible disease. It's extremely painful, and it's very deadly. And Time has got a, a new drug, uh, SM88, that is really it's going through phase two. It just got approved by the FDA, and I'm hopeful that we're going to be able to get action and we're going to set up 35 demonstrations, and people are coming in, going to be enrolling very soon. And it's going to be, I think, a breakthrough drug. It's going to give people a better chance to live a better quality of life and a longer life. And that's what it's all about. That's what medicine is all about. Right now, chemotherapy breaks down good cells as well as bad cells. This particular component doesn't do that. And so there's going to be more drugs in the future that are going to get away from the chemotherapy that causes as much pain. I want drugs to be able to relieve the pain, but also relieve the disease as well. And that's why Time is one of the first companies in this space that's going to be able to accomplish that. 
you can choose where you want to spend your time. Yes. Time spelled a different way. Time that you're referencing is T-Y-M-E, the company. Yeah. What, what else beyond cancer issues has captured your focus? Well, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to start a lot of healthcare companies. I'm involved with about 30 of them throughout the country, and I want to make sure that healthcare companies, you know, get a chance. So I try to raise money, take a leadership role, and actually run several companies. And then on the spare, my spare time, my farm. I got a. So that's my. We've, that's we've my. Seen your tractor and prepping for this that, podcast. That's yeah. my big love affair is to be on my farm, driving my tractor and bringing in the crops and tending to the cows. But overall, my mission in life right now is from politics is to get some of these small healthcare companies up and running, doing well, relieving pain, and accomplishing the objective that they're set out to do. You were known in your political career for building diverse coalitions, even around, <laughs> even around welfare reform, yeah. where Democrats bought in on that. And you mentioned President Clinton picking up the banner. Is that time over in American politics when I, we have these partisan camps? I certainly hope not. You know, Part D, I, got, I knew I had to have bipartisan support. If you don't have bipartisan support on the big issues, and that's where Obama, I think, Obamacare really got uh, uh, detoured. And when they didn't get any Republican buy-in, you need buy-in. Anytime you have big issues, Social Security, tax reform, any kind of Medicare, Medicaid, all had bipartisan buy-in. And once you have bipartisan buy-in, and we did that on Part D, not as many Democrats as we'd like, but we had bipartisan. Once you get that bipartisan buy-in on big issues, they stand the test of time. And that's something that we get, need to get back to. When I was governor, the Democrats controlled both houses. And I was a fairly successful governor. And that's because I had to work with Democrats. I wanted to work with them. And I had been in the legislature, so they trusted me. But you've got you to gotta lean over. You've got to put yourself out. You've got to exert yourself in order to be able to get that kind of buy-in. Because I always tell people, Democrats have good ideas. Republicans have good ideas. Let's see where we can meld those two together and come up with good public policy. And that's what this Congress needs to do, much more so than it ever has before. We, we get huge problems. We need bipartisan support to solve some of those problems. You recently warned Wisconsin Republicans about the political environment. Quote, we're going to have one hell of a tough fight on our hands, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it because they're much more organized much more energized and much more passionate about Democrats. And then this week, we just saw this closely contested fight in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania still hasn't decided, and it's a Republican district. As, as we're recording the podcast, the Connor Lamb, the Democrat, has a slight lead. 700 votes this morning. How worried are you for Republicans in this political environment? Oh, I, I'm, I'm very worried. I, I tell everybody, I'm... Don't uh, don't sugarcoat it. Don't don't think just because you won three times, four times that you're going to win re-election this year. This is going to be the toughest year for Republicans ever. You got a president. Some people love. Some people hate. There's really very few people in the middle, and the Democrats are more, much more energized in Texas, you know, the red state, as they were in Pennsylvania yesterday, and the Democrats. And a Republican area came out more than the Republicans did. And that's once you get organized, you got a mission. If you really dislike something or somebody, you have a much more of a tendency to go to the polls. Hate or dislike is a bigger motivator 
than like and being nice. And so you got to realize that the Democrats really are upset with the administration right now, and they're going to do everything they possibly can to elect Democrats in this upcoming election. Plus, it's a midterm election, which always means that the party in power from the president loses seats. The average is 22 seats in the House of Representatives. And so I said, take all those into consideration. You Republicans are going to be in the toughest fights you've been in ever this year. Last question for you. You're someone with one of the great political names of all time, Tommy Thompson. And I I say this as someone with an alliterative name, too. How much do you think your name helped you in your political career? If you'd been named Craig Thompson, would you have been as politically successful? (laughs) Who knows? But, you know, it's... It's been such a popular name for me in Wisconsin that I never, ever use my last name. All my billboards, all my bumper strips, all my signs was just Tommy. Everybody in Wisconsin doesn't call me governor. They don't call me Mr. Thompson. They call me Tommy. No matter where I go in the state of Wisconsin, everybody still knows Tommy. And that, the name is, has got its own aura about it. And so it's, it worked out very well for me. I thought it was going to be a downer, you know, when I first ran. But subsequent— You thought like, it would be a downer? Why? Yeah, because I just thought, you know, uh, Tommy seems like it's a nickname. It's not your real name. Tommy is my real name. And so I thought, well, maybe people think it's a nickname being cute and so on and so forth. But actually, it's worked out extremely well for me. I made it work for me. And it's a household name in the state of Wisconsin. So you say Tommy, people know who it is. Do you prefer to be called Tommy over governor and secretary, even by, by some schmo like me in Washington, sure. D.C.? Yeah, I, it's a familiarity that I really like. And people from all over come up. And they don't call me governor. They call me Tommy. And I think that's, uh, that's a sense of uh, 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 being popular. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for joining our podcast. It feels weird to say that after writing a Chicksha secretary for so many years, but it was lovely to sit down with you. Well, it's my honor, and what a what a nice uh, interview, and thank you so very much, Double D, for, for being just a, a tremendous interviewer. Thank you. It was great to catch up with Tommy Thompson and hear about all the efforts that he oversaw. Now let's take a quick look at what's happening in Washington right now. First, Politico scooped that Marilyn Tavener is stepping down from the top job at AHIP, the health insurance lobby, which she has led for three years. AHIP has seen its influence diminish somewhat in Washington as the fight over Obamacare drew in the insurance industry. And several of the country's largest insurers, United, Aetna, Humana, all dropped out of AHIP, making things even more complicated for the lobby and Maryland. The new leader of AHIP, Matt Ailes, who is the lobby's chief operating officer. Another big piece of news, the White House is reorienting after its right to try bill was defeated on Tuesday night. That bill would allow terminally ill patients to skirt the FDA's oversight when requesting access to experimental drugs. It was backed by the White House, but Democrats stepped in to block the vote. House Republicans said they'll hold another vote on right to try, which will likely clear the chamber on a simple majority vote. The reason it failed on Tuesday, the House is trying to move quickly through an expedited process that required support of two-thirds of the chamber. And third, Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes, long embattled, was charged by the SEC with fraud on Wednesday. Holmes, 
who had founded the blood testing company a number of years ago and grew it to a multi-billion dollar valuation, was found by the SEC to have defrauded investors of more than $700 million by exaggerating or making false statements about what the company had accomplished. Among those false claims, that the company had done considerable work for the Department of Defense, it had not, and that it was going to make as much as $100 million, if not more, in revenue in the year 2014. The company only made about $100,000. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Tommy Thompson and his team for making time, and to Micaelo Rodriguez for traveling across Washington, D.C. with me on this cold and windy day. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com with suggestions about the podcast, and you can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast feed next week.